Hi everyone, this is Tampa Nasir, and for the 10th episode of my show, Leadership Biz Cafe, I'm delighted to welcome Doug Conant as my guest. For the last 10 years, Doug has served as the president and CEO of Campbell Soup Company, where he helped transform the Fortune 500 company from one of the worst performing organizations to one of the best, both in terms of profitability and employee engagement levels. While he may have retired in 2011, Doug remains quite active in the leadership field, both through his speaking engagements and writings in such publications as the Harvard Business Review. And speaking of writing, Doug is also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Touchpoints, Creating Powerful Leadership Connections in the Smallest of Moments, which will serve as the focus of today's conversation. Hi, Doug. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. I think a good place for us to start this conversation is by looking at your definition of touch points, in particular in how this approach encourages leaders to rethink their assumptions about the various distractions and interruptions they face over the course of the day. So what are touch points and why are they important in today's leadership? Well, I'm going to preface this remark uh, to create the right context for the definition. Uh, my observation, uh, I've, I've had the privilege of being a uh, president and CEO of Campbell Soup Company for the first decade of this uh, century. And I started my career, obviously, in the last century, and I was uh, working in various levels of the org- of organizations for 25 years, the last quarter of last century. And I have seen a profound shift in terms of the environment in which people are being challenged to operate today versus when I started. And I think the most profound shift has been uh, how they are being overwhelmed during their day by, uh, uh, by data and people. Uh, when, I, when I'm out speaking, I'll have uh, people hold up their hands, everybody in the room, and we'll be talking to a group. It could be a not-for-profit group. It could be a group of people working in the public sector, or it could be a corporate group. I have, they put their hands up, and how many of you receive 100 emails a day? How about 200? And most of the hands are still up. How about 250, 300? And typically, we, we start to, the hands start to go down around 200 to 300 a day. And then we talk about text messages. Then we talk about phone calls. Then we talk about people stopping by the office to talk. And then we talk about planned meetings. And then we talk about the family. And then we talk about community commitments. And that's every day, seven days a week. And uh, the, the, my observation is that the most profound change is how today's working environment is challenging everyone from the top of the house down to the first line to uh, tr- basically uh, to take a sip of water from the fire hydrant of life every day. People are overwhelmed. And they're having trouble finding a way to be effective in that environment. With that backdrop, one day I was uh, at a conference with uh, my co-author, Madden Odergaard, where we were teaching a group of senior executives uh, about leadership. And we were getting ready to go back from the bucolic uh, mountains, uh, Berkshire Mountains, to, to go back to the hectic corporate life. And she said, how can you go back to that environment? 
it's, it's, it's just sheer chaos, and we're walking around a quiet lake, right? And she and and I and I looked at her and I said, you know, Meta, uh, to me, uh, every one of those interactions is an opportunity for me for me to be helpful to someone else. So I actually look forward to the interactions. On the back of that conversation, we developed the idea of touch points. Started looking at every interaction as an opportunity to be helpful to someone else, to make your strategy a little more clear, to move things along within your organization or your family or your church a little more effectively and efficiently than you could if you weren't talking to those people, if you weren't connecting with them. So we define touch points with that background as any interaction with two or more people where you're dealing with an issue and trying to move things forward. And we found that people spark to this idea because, well, I don't know how I can be a better leader. I don't know that I can ever be a Jack Welch or a, or a uh, President Obama. But you know what? I can do a little better in the next interaction than I did in the last one. Then the leadership conversation becomes approachable and becomes manageable. And we found that it created a whole new level of energy around the idea of, well, I don't know if I can be a leader in every moment of every day, but there's certain situations where I can do a better job of leading the conversation. And uh, that's how we started to get beyond the complexity of this big idea called leadership down to the focus of touch points in every interaction there's an opportunity for you to say just the right thing in just the right way and be helpful to that person. And you'll be acting as a leader in that moment. And so that sort of dimensionalized the notion of touch points. And if I had to put words around it, just a few words, I'd say the action is in the interaction. Uh, all this other stuff about leadership is important and the words are important and how you behave every moment is important. But uh, where the rubber meets the road is in the interaction itself. The action is in the interaction, and if you perform well there, uh, you can change your contribution profile. Right, and this is why I wanted to start a discussion with this point, because in light of how much there's being written and shared about how we can become better leaders for those we serve, it's easy for us to think that this is yet another thing we need to add to our plate, instead of recognizing that what we're basically talking about here is a change in our mindset and a perception on our part to view these interruptions as being opportunities uh, where leaders can have essentially a positive and meaningful impact on how your employees view themselves and the role they play in achieving your organization's purpose. Well, that, that's absolutely right. And put another way, uh, there is no choice. Uh, in, in these same uh, speeches I give and these talks I give, I, I ask people after we have our hands up and we do 200 to 300 uh, emails a day, interactions, uh, I say, and do you think that number is going to go up or down? Nobody thinks it's going down. And the paradigm that they're coming from says, I've got to push all these things away so I can do my real work. And what we're saying, in the future, this will be your real work. You have no choice. It's coming. The train has left the station. You are going to continue to have this kind of assault on your work life and on your personal life. It's all in how you manage it. And we're creating a platform for managing it more thoughtfully in a more enlightened way, which deals with the reality that it's just not going to change. 
And, and, and then all of a sudden people say, well, to us, uh, this, this, I understand this makes sense. Right. And I mean, in terms of how do we effectively lead through these touch points, these points that are obviously going to keep escalating. And as you said, these are, this is really going to become the work that you do. You say that there's three elements that we need to use, and that is learning to use your head, your heart, and your hands. More specifically, that as leaders, we need to learn to be more outward focused and asking more questions to understand the reality of those around us face, to exhibit more compassion and empathy once we have that fuller understanding of our employees' reality, and then using that newfound awareness to guide our decisions and the resources we provide to our employees. Now, in the section about learning to use your head, one of the things I really liked is how you brought the idea that we need to develop our own personal uh, leadership model that will help us to ascertain and properly evaluate these moments instead of relying on a single leadership model that would be used throughout your organization. To help illustrate this, could you share your experiences about how you went about creating your leadership model while you served at the Helmet Campbells? And also, how did you get the other leaders in your team to develop their own models instead of simply grafting yours onto their leadership approach? Uh, again, I'm going to preface my comments so that when I do actually answer your question, it, it will uh, be done in the right context. Sure. Uh, my, uh, my, one of my fundamental beliefs is the best time to deal with things is before they happen. Uh, uh, you need to be prepared to perform in the moment before the moment occurs. And uh, we all face leadership moments every day and big issues and like who's going to bring the coffee to the meeting, who's going to call the meeting, who's going to take notes uh, to we've got a big decision to make today. Uh, all of those things uh, are interactions, issues, large and small. And, and my observation over 35 years of work and just my intuition says, boy, if I'm prepared ahead of time, it's going to be a lot easier for me to deal with these decisions. And given that more and more are coming at me every day, there's even a, a, a greater imperative than there used to be to be prepared ahead of time. So uh, with that as background, we challenge people to think about how they want to walk in the world, how they want to lead in a way that resonates deeply and uh, intuitively with them. You know, I've been studying leadership uh, since college, actually. I... I, I uh, I majored in political science, and I, I was fascinated with uh, the uh, presidents of the United States, and I studied all the presidents. And I was fascinated by all their leadership skills and, and their foibles as well. And uh, then I went on to graduate school at, at the Kellogg School of Management Science at Northwestern, and uh, I started studying uh, world leaders and business leaders. and. So I've been studying leaders now for uh, over almost 40 years. Uh, and I studied leadership models uh, and, and ways of building leadership models. Stephen Covey's model is actually a leadership model. It's his seven habits of highly effective people. Uh, Bill George's uh, approach, uh, who's, who's the former chairman CEO of Medtronic at, and now is a Harvard Business School professor, uh, from his book, True North, and hundreds of other uh, models. 
And what's fascinating, even with 40 years of study, I can't find any of those models that rings perfectly true to me. Mm. And why is that? I say, I say to myself, well, why is that? Well, those models aren't informed by my experiences and by my aspirations. So uh, where we landed as we started to develop the touch points concept, actually before we developed the touch points concept, was, you know, there's a quote in our book that from George E. Box, a pioneer in quality control, who, who said, all models are wrong, some are useful. And we landed on a belief that all leadership models are wrong, but they can be useful. But they're wrong because they're not informed by the individual's experiences and aspirations. So that is background. We challenged uh, ourselves to develop, to try developing a leadership model that spoke to us, each of us, in a quality way. So I developed my leadership model, which ultimately became the Campbell Soup Company leadership model. And I'll talk about how organizations need leadership models and individuals. It's not one or the other, it's both. Uh, and I found that I had kind of, I thought that there were six, there ought to be six expectations of me as a leader. They're, they're captured in our book and it starts, uh, the first expectation is to inspire trust. The second expectation is to create direction. The third expectation of a leader is to create organizational alignment to get that direction executed. The fourth expectation is to give the team the vitality, the organization the vitality to, uh, to carry out the exercise. The fifth expectation is to execute with excellence because I believe a, a good plan well executed beats a brilliant plan poorly executed every time. And the sixth expectation is that you deliver, you produce extraordinary results, which then inspires more trust. And I create a flywheel in my, in my leadership model uh, of uh, that drives continuous improvement. Now that model sort of works for me on a variety of levels, is informed by my experiences. And I, I, I'm not looking at a piece of paper right now, and I can whip that off. Uh, it's second nature. So when I'm in a, a leadership crisis moment, I can go, I naturally go to my model, and I think what works for me, and I show up for people in an authentic way that uh, that helps navigate whatever decisions we have to make. I think it does need to be second nature, and it can only be second nature if it's something that speaks to you uh, deeply. You know, I think in our book somewhere, we, we do say, you know, when you're in a crisis or even doesn't even have to be a crisis, when you're in a leadership moment, you're not going to sit there and say, well, I wonder what Ken Blanchard would do or what, you know, Jim Collins would do or what Tanvir would do. You're going to think, what do I do? And you ought to be in a position to answer that before it even happens. Uh, that's an observation. Another observation is that if you really want to be good at this, you have to work at it. I do believe this whole leadership journey is a craft. Uh, I believe it's sacred ground. I believe that we think more about our work. We're either working or thinking about our work more than anything we do, including in many days more than our families and our friends. Uh, and, and as such, we need to treat that work as sacred ground. We are affecting people's lives. And if you, if you accept that premise, you say, well, gee, if I want to be good at anything, I probably do have to work at it. There are natural leaders, people who are naturally a little better than others, but they can be better if they work at it. 
And so we challenge everyone to work at being a better leader, to build a leadership model that speaks to them deeply and profoundly so that when they're in moments, they're, when they're in moments of challenge, they're in a position to deal with them in a most productive way. And uh, so that's the nature and the thought process behind building a leadership model that speaks to you. Right. And, you know, in your book, there is a point you brought up. And I know it gets kind of in a different light repeated in later on in the book, but which I thought was incredibly important. And that is in the process of developing our own personal leadership model, and like, as you said, also an organizational leadership model, we shouldn't expect that it will ensure that we always manage these touch points correctly, that we have to recognize that it is an iterative process as we have to continually adjust and refine it to reflect what we learn as well as in response to the various changes that will come up as we go forward. And, you know, I'm sure for most people, we want that, you know, that panacea, that thing where we read this book, we come up with that model, and then we just apply it, and then we, that's one less thing to worry about. But I actually found in thinking about this that it's actually quite reassuring to think of this leadership model as always being this work in progress because it gives us that permission to make mistakes and learn from them so we can be better leaders for those under our care. You know, there's a wonderful uh, premise in a book written by Meg Wheatley, uh, biologist. Uh, I think I think it's called A Simpler Way is her book, or A Sim Simple Way, or some. But anyway, she fundamentally says, from a science perspective, listen, life is messy. It will always be messy. But in, in biology, cells will self-organize and figure out how to deal with the mess. And But it will always be messy. And that's been my experience in work. It's always messy. It's always ambiguous. It's dynamic. Now, you can choose to engage in that in a constructive way, or you can try and hide. In reality, if you aspire to be a leader in today's world, you can't hide from it. You have to embrace it. Uh, it will be forever changing. You will make mistakes. We all make mistakes. But you learn from them and you grow. I mean, this is, uh, in, a, in this sense, leadership in the 21st century is very Darwinian. You either grow or die. There's no in between. We recommend people choose growth because it beats the alternative. But uh, you do have to embrace this notion of uh, it is a mess. I think there's another book written by Frank Barrett, uh, who's, uh, uh, and the title of the book is Say Yes to the Mess. And, and Frank is a, uh, uh, he teaches leadership uh, in San Diego, I believe, at, the, at one of the Naval Academies there. He's a jazz musician. And he, and he challenges people, you know, to say yes to the mess and embrace it and then find a way to work with it. And I think that's a, a neat way to think about it. And your leadership model that will anchor you in how you want to walk in the world that is, and is, is informed by your life experiences, just helps you navigate that world so much more effectively. Right. And I mean, in your book, and I know you mentioned it in our conversation before this interview, um, there's a phrase you repeat and uh, you've used in your articles, and I've seen you've mentioned in interviews you've done elsewhere. And I think it touches on this idea of, of having to deal with the mess that comes up in today's workplaces. Uh, and that is that leaders need to be tough-minded with the issue or problem, but tender-hearted with their people. Now, could you explain what this means? What do you mean by this? Because, you know, it's easy in light of the prevailing cynicism out there to think of this as looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. And given how 
like you pointed out at the start of this conversation, how people are just inundated with so many emails, and now there's text messages, and there's all these different outlets for people to communicate on top of the regular face-to-face ones. How are we supposed to grapple with this idea of dealing with the mess of being tough-minded on issues but tender-hearted with people? Well, let's be clear. We can't manage every interaction brilliantly. I mean, you know, some of these are more important than others. And when we talk to groups, Meta and I, we say, you know, if you can have three more productive interactions out of the 200 that you have in there, if you can take three important interactions and be profoundly better based on doing a little work ahead of time, you can change your leadership contribution profile profoundly. And so, but you, that, I mean, none of us is perfect. None of us bats a thousand on this journey. And so uh, uh, we do have to be selective. We have to be pra- practical. Uh, that having been said, uh, my experience is that the most productive leaders are leaders that have world-class standards but at the same time are communicating those standards in a way that indicates they care about others. Uh, And uh, one of the things I do in my talks is I ask, I I share with people a few of my personal touch points and I actually have uh, on my website at conantleadership.com, I have, I, I, I talk about 10 touch points. And in those 10 touch points, if you add up all the words, they're 59 words across 10 touch points, an average of less than six words a touch point. And if you say all the words together, it takes about 40 seconds. So, uh, you know, they can be very brief interactions. I would tell you those 10 interactions I had uh, have had a more significant impact on my career journey, my life journey, than all the continuing education I've had combined. And uh, because these people were showing up for me, uh, some of them were negative experiences, by the way, but these people on balance were showing up for me in a way where they were saying just the right thing in just the right way at just the right time. And they helped me navigate a difficult situation. Interestingly, in all of those experiences, when those people were at their best, they were they had world class standards. They had high expectations, but they were working with me in a compassionate way. And uh, as I observed that and as I reflected on it, and as I reflected on my own leadership contributions over time, I found that I was at my best when I was maintaining the high standards that I believed in. And I was finding a way to communicate it to people in a way that honored them, respected them, and told them I cared about them too. Uh, Sometimes in my... uh, talks, and we've got to be careful with this, but I think you will get the point. I talk about parenting, and it's not that as leaders we're parenting people, but uh, people understand the concept that when they're parenting, when they're at their best, they want to communicate to their children that they ought to walk in the world with high standards. But they also find a way to communicate it to to their children when they're at their best, in a nurturing, caring way. It's not that they, it's high standards at all costs, and I don't care how you feel about it. And it's not all about, well, let's, I just love you, love you, love you, and I don't care about your standards. It's both. We have high standards, and we care. 
And uh, I don't, you know, it's not always easy to navigate that space. But if one works at it, I think one can find a way in every moment to say to have the standards and to show that they have compassion for the people with whom they live and work. In fact, in my lifetime, I found it's just a lot more fun. I, I, you know, we enjoy the conversation and people are willing to come back to me. I have worked for people uh, where those conversations are not pleasant. They tell you exactly what's expected and you can't wait to get out of the room. And, and by the way, you never want to go back in that room again. And if you ever have an issue, you're going to think twice to even bringing it to the leader's attention. You see, uh, one of the other things we do, we, we talk to people about touch points and you know, we talk to them about when you have a positive touch point, it's amazing how it can spread around the office. It's almost like the game of telephone. It just goes everywhere. Everybody knows. I had a great meeting with Doug today. If you have a bad meeting or a bad interaction, that also travels and it undermines your effectiveness uh, with an entire group of people. And if you have a series of better challenging interactions every day, Believe me, you are undermining your effectiveness for the long term because everybody knows about it. Everybody starts trying to find ways to navigate around you to not necessarily tell you the whole story because they know where that's going to lead. Uh, so what we found is if you can maintain the standards and maintain the engagement of the people in a positive way, you win. If you don't, over time, you lose. And, and, and I believe you really lose. Right. It seems like this, that's the undercurrent theme, and it's something you, to quote you wrote in your book, is that touch points are all about communication. And, you know, the flip side of when you talk about communication is is that as much as it's what we're imparting and, and how we're showing up for those conversations, it's also a matter of the attentiveness and the awareness we bring in listening to what those we interact with are saying, that we're not only present in that conversation, but that we're attuned to what they're trying to tell us, which I think touches into that element you talk about, about leading with our heart. Well, I think, I think you have to, we talk head, heart, and hands. Head, is, head speaks to a left-brained approach to the world, which says you have to have a model that works for you and makes sense logically, uh, a leadership model. You have to have a way of walking in the world that, you know, just makes sense to you and makes sense to your head. But, and and that, it, that also connects with this idea of being tough-minded on standards. But the, the heart, uh, what we have found is if you want to have increasing effectiveness in, in your interactions, you have to have an increasing level of authenticity in those interactions where people are getting, have a true belief that they're seeing the essence of you in those conversations, you're not playing a game with them, uh, that, you're, you're, that, you're, that you're personally engaged in the work. So what we have found is you need that logical model, but you also need to show up with ever more, with ever increasing levels of authenticity. If you put those two things together, you have a pretty compelling proposition, the head and the heart. The third piece you need to have, and we talk about the hands, that's more developing the competencies. As This goes back to an early part of our conversation where we talk about the need to, uh, to practice and to become better over time. Uh, there's this wonderful study uh, by uh, Erickson uh, called, you know, and you're probably familiar with it. It's this 10,000 hours idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
where if you want to be a professional football player, you better be practicing 10,000 hours, a doctor, a lawyer, uh, whatever your chosen profession, you ought to be working at it and you ought to be developing the craft. And we believe that if you want to be an effective leader and you want to bring your personal leadership model to life in a compelling way, you ought to be working at that too in a way that works for you and, and practicing and trying to develop your competencies around your head and your heart model. Uh, and when you do those three things together, the head, the heart, the hands, the logic, the authenticity, and the practice, over time you develop you know, a master's touch in the moment because you're showing up completely. And in that sense, we do talk in the book also about a mastery model. This is sort of like you're trying to become a master leader and you have to apprentice at it. You have to develop your model. You have to work that model to a place where you sort of master it, knowing that it will forever be changing, which is, if you choose to view it this way, is a really exciting thing because it indicates you're continuing to grow in your leadership's capacity. Right. Uh, and just to be clear here, though, uh, I mean, in terms of the, you know, regular practice and always, you know, being involved, engaged in using your model and refining it and so forth. Um, it, it doesn't mean, though, that leaders need to stop whatever they're doing when their employees approach them with a question or an issue or answer those emails when it comes in. Rather, what it is is about ensuring that when you do commit to engaging your employees in that conversation, you're fully committed mentally and emotionally uh, to finding out what they need and how you can be of help. That's true. Uh but that can happen in small moments. Uh, the mo we, we have a, a simple model for bringing this to life, which is also in the book. We call it the touchpoint triad. They're basically uh, three skills you have to, in every interaction we challenge people to use, and we create a paradigm, a continuous improvement paradigm that's wrapped around this. But basically, we challenge people to go into every interaction, even an interaction where you choose not to interact, with a how can I help mindset with, okay, somebody's coming up to me to talk about something. I'm going to sort through it quickly, but I'm, I'm going to go into this with the desire to be helpful. And then uh, there are three things we challenge them to do, which are when they, when they get really good at it, you can just plow through issue after issue after issue. And those three things are you listen intently to what is said and not said. So you stop for a minute and listen. It can be for 30 seconds, but you listen. You listen intently to what is said and to what is not said. The second issue is, the second step is to frame the issue. And by that, we say, make sure you understand what they're asking. You're asking me to do this. Got it. Is this your issue? And then we challenge people to answer in that framing. Is this your issue, my issue, or our issue? If it's your issue, what do you want me to do? If it's my issue, here's what I want to do. If it's our issue, how do you want to proceed? And the third thing is to advance the issue in some way. And we encourage people not to try and solve issues, just to help move them forward. And if, if you listen, frame, advance, and help the person move that issue a little bit forward, you can be in and out of that conversation in a minute. And you can have been helpful, and at some point they'll come back to you. The last piece of this, in the spirit of continuous improvement, is you ask yourself or you ask the person if it makes sense, it doesn't always make sense, to say, well, how did it go and what can we do better? So the, in, in every interaction, if you can go in with a how can I help mentality, 
you listen frame advance and then you say how did it go it's amazing how you can materially change your contributions this particular idea has great uh, cons uh, gets great traction with groups we speak with because it's the kind of thing you can do Monday morning or the kind of thing you can pick up right after the, we talk and try it out in your next interaction. And then people are amazed at how, while it's simple, how helpful it is to have a little structure for this, for issue management. And, uh, uh, and so at a minimum, I, I encourage people to, to listen to, Go into every interaction saying, how can I help? Listen frame advance. How did it go? And, and to try navigating their day that way, and they will find it would meaningfully change their contribution profile. Right. And, I mean, in terms of the, the last part and following it through and finding out how did it go, what came out of it, um, there's something that you're well known for, but I want to take it on a approach on a different angle, and that's how, you know, in the process of addressing these issues, when people came to you with something and you trying to find out who's owning the issue and who are the shareholders in the issue and then following through is how you spent your time at Campbell's. Uh, you wrote 10 to 20 handwritten thank you notes for employees all around the world. And as much as this is a good example of uh, how leaders can recognize the efforts of those they lead, because you know it tells the person someone's paying attention to me because what I do matters, do you find that it also um, instills a sense of community because it demonstrates a shared sense of purpose and belonging? And so, as a consequence, people are more willing to come back and approach these things. And you have those touch points because they, there is that follow-through at the end once it's resolved and the recognition of how the, the impact is not just, okay, that's one thing off my to-do list. The impact is more on how it impacts your organization as a community and, and the sense of purpose that fuels it. Well, I, I did do 10 to 20 notes uh, a day to people all around the world, and they were handwritten. In total, there were, we didn't count them at the time, but in total, we, we figured out there were at least 30,000 notes, and we only had 20,000 employees. So it was a big, it, it turned out to be a lot of notes that were posted on a lot of bulletin boards and sitting laminated on a lot of desks. Uh, but interestingly, it goes back to being tough-minded on standards and tender-hearted with people. Virtually all those notes were connected to a specific project where we had high standards. And I'd say, thank you for doing this on time and on budget. Or, gee, you beat the schedule. Great. Uh, and people, I was reinforcing the standards and I was doing it in a, in a thoughtful way. So uh, I was being tough-minded on standards and tender-hearted with people. It did have... Uh, an impact that went way beyond my expectations. I was just doing it because I, I wanted to acknowledge good work. But, you know, I retired, uh, what, about a little over a year ago. And if, if you go to my website again, probably the thing that most touched me when I at my retirement was a video that the employees put together uh, thanking me for my thank you notes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's about a, it, it takes entirely too long, but there's like almost a 10 minute video on there of the Campbell employees on touch points. And uh, it's right there on the homepage. It's worth looking at because you can see the kind of impact I had. And I didn't even know I had this impact. The other observation I would make about it, about these recognizing good work. Well, there are two. One is 
it's not all about dealing with the good stuff. There are all kinds of mistakes and problems, and you have to deal with that too. I chose to deal with those issues in person. And so most of these notes were positive notes, but not all of them. But uh, there are two sides to this. There are times where you don't get the job done and where you miss the deadline or where you don't deliver the intended results, and you have to talk about that too. And so I, I don't want to make it sound like a Campbell Soup Company. If you went to that video, you, you'd be thinking we were all holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Uh, that was at my retirement party, but it did illustrate the power of those notes. But there were lots of conversations that were very tough-minded as well. I mean, we turned over 300 of our top 350 leaders at Campbell in my first three years. And I was involved in a ton of very difficult conversations where I was trying to maintain, or I did maintain a high standard for conduct and performance, but I, I still endeavored to do it in a very compassionate way. So that's the first observation. It's not all holding hands and singing kumbaya. The other interesting postscript to the story is I was in a near fatal automobile accident three years ago, uh, and they're still working to put Humpty Dumpty back together again today. But uh, as I went through that, uh, and I'm in the hospital and the ICU sitting there with my wife every day, bundles of mail would come in, handwritten notes from all these employees, most of whom I had never met from all over the world saying, you know, you sent me this very thoughtful note six years ago. I still have it on my desk. And, you know, I, I want you to know that our thoughts, are, my family's thoughts and prayers are with you as you go through this ordeal. We have thousands of employee notes that came back to me uh, that, that brought to life for me the power of reaching out to people in a tough-minded and tender-hearted way, the power that it, it offers a leader to create a sense of community that sort of transcends the everyday community that we experience. And I lived it. I survived it. And uh, I saw it tested when I was uh, in dire straits myself. So this notion of being tough-minded and tender-hearted, making this work personal for people, is, is to me a very powerful notion. And I'll tell you one last thing. This is the expectation of people coming into the workforce today. This is the expectation of the millennial generation. When I go talk to them, I, I'm, I can't, I've been on probably five campuses in the last uh, two months, everywhere from Stanford to Tufts. Uh, there's this conversation that goes on that says in the next 10 years, uh, the average new worker, the average worker coming into the workforce is going to be working, doing seven different jobs, seven different companies. And, uh, and I talk to them and to a person, they don't want that. They want to be in a place where they can have an extraordinary sense of community, a place that has high standards and a place that cares about them as an individual, a place where they can learn and grow. And I do not for the life of me understand why we can't create communities like that. We did at Campbell. I did it in Nabisco before that. The landscape is filled with, with companies that are doing that. We need to do it better. More companies need to embrace the idea. But this is, this is the way forward in a very dynamic and challenging world. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, you know, it ties into one of my favorite messages you share in your book, which is namely the difference between finding meaning in your work 
and finding a sense of purpose in what you do, right? And that drive to serve others, to serve organizations, really at the heart of creating a sense of community and organization. And I think that's why all those handwritten notes you sent out had the impact it did, because it reinforced that message uh, of not just the high standards, but going beyond finding the meaning in our work to appreciate that sense of purpose we create both for ourselves and for others. And it's probably a very clear example of your statement that how we need to be tough-minded on the issue, but tender-hearted with the people, and, and how they still felt that connection and still do to this day with you because of that sense of community and shared purpose that's been, you know, communicated consistently in those touch points. Well, yeah, and, and quite frankly, if you don't create that sense of relationship with your associates, the people with whom you live and work, or with, with whom you work and the people with whom you live in the community and your family, if you don't create that kind of special connection, it's hard to expect them to have that special connection with the work you're trying to create. Right. Yeah. It's the, the spirit of reciprocity here is, 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 is very powerful. You know, and who has to take the initiative? I believe leaders of today have to take the initiative and they have to genuinely and authentically care about their associates in a way that enrolls them in the process. And they and in a way that says, I feel I feel good about being here. I feel appreciated. I'm going to lean into this a little harder and in a little more complete way in order to get the job done, because I don't want to disappoint the community, this community. Right. Yeah. That, that's a powerful idea. And quite frankly, I don't know how it can work any other way. And I know they're cynics, but the cynics are not going to solve the world's problems. I guarantee it. Uh, you know, the people that are going to solve the world's problems are builders, people who want to make a difference. Uh, the leaders of tomorrow are the people who are going to forge new paradigms for, for people to work in. And, and that's what we're talking about here. That, we're talking about building a better world in the workplace and beyond. Absolutely. And I mean, that's also why I tell people that, you know, leadership is a learning process that never ends. You'll never be at a point uh, where you can say you've learned it all. Yeah. And, and why would you want to? I no. mean, yeah. You know, the, the fa I was with a friend yesterday who's runs a wonderful executive search uh, organization headquartered here in Philadelphia. And, you know, every time I talk to him, I delight in the fact that you know, I'm learning something new every day about what's going on and what's relevant today. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's that for me, uh, that's, that's essential to my growth as a person. Most organizations have four things that are required that need to be addressed to create the kind of environment where they're learn where they're, uh, feeling that they're getting all their needs met. And it really ties into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but I, I've summarized it down to four. Actually, I've stolen this from, Steve, uh, from a conversation I had with Stephen Covey years ago. He said, Doug, there are four things that organizations need to have. Yeah, people need to make a living. They need to feel loved or a part of the community. They need to be learning. And they need to be working uh, on. A, they need to see an opportunity to leave a legacy of contribution that transcends their own work experience. So it's and, and those four L's are a very powerful notion for anybody leading an organization: living, loving, learning, and leaving a legacy. And uh, and if you want to be a world-class organization that has an enduring uh, uh, employee value proposition. You've got to be addressing all four of those things. 
And that's why uh, tough-minded on standards and tender-hearted with people uh, gets traction with me. We have high standards. We're going to make sure you can make a living, but we and we're, but we're going to love you. We're going to help you learn, and we're going to help you do something special. When you address those four things, it's amazing what an organization can do. And that's in the for-profit sector, the not-for-profit sector, and in the public sector. Right. Well, I know I told you, Doug, at this at the beginning of our conversation, uh, but I really do feel that your book truly contains a wealth of insights and guidance that can help you know all of us to become better leaders, irrespective of our roles and titles. This is independent of any... Uh, many of the examples that that we've experienced, most of them, the experts are typically the the people that work for us as opposed to us. And and our challenge is to let them lead because they actually know what needs to be done more than we do. Right. I, I mean, I know I read recently, I, I think it's a preliminary study where they were looking at sports coaches and noticing how the best ones were not those that, you know, understood the nature of the game, the nature of the players and so forth. The best ones were the ones who basically learned and fed off their players and letting them help them become better coaches. And and I think in a lot of ways, that's so indicative if you see how some teams, they can have all these star players, and yet they don't seem to do that well. And yet other ones have what you wouldn't consider to be the top players, but it seems the coach really is focused on understanding, in many ways, I guess, the touch points, understanding you know how they can help, what is the issue concern, and then helping follow through and helping the team accomplish stuff. And I think that's true in a lot of the organizations that are thriving right now, uh, where leaders are focusing on, you know, not basically leading from the front, but understanding that their job is there is the question that you leave your book with. And that is, how can I help? Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, the best sports coach book I've, I've read is Sacred Hoops by Phil Jackson. And, uh, and, and that, and, and, in essence, uh, that's consistent with your observation. The one thing I have noticed, there are lots of sports analogies in business. I, 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 I wish uh, sports is easy. I mean, I, you know, we make it sound hard, and it is. I mean, life is hard. But, you know, you have everybody on one court or on one field, and the coach can see all the players and can see the competition, and, uh, and, they, and they can live in the moment with all those people in one place. Uh, that is so different from a work experience where people are coming and going. The field is not clear. Mm -hmm. yeah. The city is enormous. The, uh, you can have teams on different continents in different offices, uh, different ages, different levels of proficiency. Uh, you know, I, I, there are only a few coaches that I've seen that have would have the capacity to manage that kind of complexity, right? Does so, you know, and I've read all the books because I'm a huge sports fan. But uh, I would contend that leading in today's world, uh, with all the complexity we have, uh, some of the old sports coaching paradigms just won't work. Uh, we need to we need to be more enlightened than that and go beyond it. There's some there's some principles by which uh, one runs a good team that uh, where, where, where that would absolutely have traction now and forever. But the complexity that our leaders are even that our managers are facing in today's work environment 
is is much much tougher and so we we've got to be even more helpful uh in creating uh ways to work that can work in today's uh, world definitely i mean obviously also the other point is that your employees are never going to be on the playing field at the same time to use that analogy so it's hard for you to anticipate how they're going to respond or what conditions they're going to face when they're out doing what they need to do Right. And by the way, the people they work with don't, aren't going to wait for them to check with you before they do something. Exactly. On-demand right. world. Their customer wants the answer now. Now. Yeah. Check with the coach to see, <laughs> why do you want me to run? It just it doesn't happen. So uh, anyway, but uh, we're drifting. I, 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 do, I do highly recommend Sacred Hoops by Phil Jackson. I, and for the record, I think the Los Angeles Lakers made a big mistake. <laughs> well, there's the big sports fan in you coming out, right? That's right. Well, Doug, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I, I really am grateful uh, for you taking the time to sit down and talk with us and share some of your insights on leadership and building these better connections with those we lead. Well, I'm happy to do it. Uh, this is important work for all of us. We need to help each other. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm happy to share my perspective on it. It's only my perspective, but in my opinion, it's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Doug. For, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for, for, for taking the time. I appreciate it. Good luck. I've been talking with Doug Conant about leadership and his book, Touchpoints, Creating Powerful Leadership Connections in the Smallest of Moments. To learn more about Doug's work and his book, visit the webpage for this episode at tavernasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage, or by filling out the contact form at tanvirnasir.com. Until next time, this is Tanvir Nasir. Thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs>